Welcome everyone to another installation of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. I'm Finarne Jørgensen. I'm Dolly Jørgensen. Uh, and today we have with us uh, Candace Fujikane from uh, University of Hawaii, where she is Professor of English. And she will talk about her new book, Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, uh, Kanaka Maoli and Critical Settler Cartographies in Hawaii, which came out of Duke University Press in 2021. So we're just going to jump straight into it. So the floor is yours, Candice. Thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate the invitation. Um, Dolly connected with me. I think it was over Twitter and I, I love Twitter. You know, we actually, uh, I think I was able to reach 100,000 people about my book by sending out a, a little tweet. So um, uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. And, you know, I've never been to Norway, so it's really exciting for me. You know, it's kind of uh, on the bucket list uh, to, to, to visit someday. So um, I could talk a little bit about the book. Um, so Mapping Abundance for Planetary Future. So I've been kind of um, thinking about the connections between different restoration projects in Hawaii. And I had been fortunate enough to be in, uh, involved in some of the victories that farmers and uh, fishermen have had against uh, corporate development of agricultural lands and cultural lands. So um, I was thinking about how do you organize a book like this and one of the uncles at one of the farms was saying to me, you know, we, we need to connect the dots. We need to build on each other's victories instead of reinventing the wheel all the time. And at that time, um, I also went to a conference where my former dissertation director, David Lloyd, was talking about how capital fears abundance. And so I thought I started thinking about, well, well, then if that's where capital uh, capital's fears lie, then we should strike at capital uh, where it's weakest. And that would be by mapping that abundance that it fears. So that was sort of the premise for the book. And I had started with this gorgeous image of um, the kalo leaves, which I can talk a little bit about. But I'm going to share screen um, because uh, I have like a, a, a brief PowerPoint. And let me just call this up. And since um, it's kind of cold in Norway, I thought I would share pictures of, uh, I went to actually to, I'm working on a new book called Elemental Cartographies, and um, I wanted to map seawalls and look at um, the impacts of seawalls and kind of how um, Kanaka Mali are responding to seawalls. But um, so this is actually um, uh, former President Obama's uh, compound in Waimanalo in Hawaii. And you can see it's a really beautiful day, but you see how they've erected the seawall that um, is posing greater and greater problems in Hawaii for residents because of the ways that the seawalls erode away the beaches, um, they exacerbate erosion problems um, and sea level rise problems actually. And here's another picture. Oh, and so this is actually a, a fish pond, um, which was actually a way that Kanakamali used to deal, I think in some ways with sea level rise um, or you know how to protect fish and to cultivate fish in enclosed um, areas. So, but I want to talk a little bit about um, mapping abundance. So, um, if we think about why things in Hawaii have a planetary impact, it's because Kanaka Maoli researchers, hula practitioners, um, these are all chant. They're chant specialists. They look to the chants for uh, data 
for data collection, uh, they look at the ways that Kupuna approached climate change events. And through um, these chants, they were they're able to identify um, different natural processes. Um, and actually, they call them elemental laws, the kanavai. The kanavai are laws governing uh, conservation and um, protection of resources like water and they don't even call them resources they call the water the water is actually family yeah so um so they think about um when we talk about akua um akua is popularly defined in hawaii as gods but they're actually more accurately um, defined as elemental forms and natural processes. So we can think about how Hawaiians have 400,000 akua because every place has its own deities, um, its own elemental form. So in each ahupua'a, which is a land division stretching from the mountains to the sea, there are specific akua relevant to particular places. So where I live in Heia, there is um, there's actually an, uh, a fish pond called Haleo Meheanu, or it's the house of the Mo'o, or reptilian deity Meheanu. And there you would find Hinalua Iko'a, who represents the natural process of coral spawning. So Hina, Lua'i means to throw up, and Ko'a means coral. So Hina who vomits, or you could think about it more poetically as bringing forth that which is within and out into the open. Um, and ku keapua is the rising motion of the coral gamete. So with these, um, these elemental forms, you have this kind of proliferation of coral, very important as a base for um, abundance in for all marine life. And um, so I, I, I open up the book by looking at an example of um, Mo'oaina mapping, so looking to the mo'olelo or the storied histories for the mappings of water, and I look at the procession of the mo'o across the land, and it's there in Olelo Hawaii with all of the places. So they didn't necessarily draw maps, but the maps were embedded and encoded in chants and in stories that appeared in the Hawaiian language newspapers. And so um, I took a geo, uh, geological map, uh, mapping of the um, two volcanic series um, on Oahu. So this would be the Ko'olau volcanic series, and this would be the Waianae volcanic series. So you can see by the edge of the green where the series meet. And so where they meet is what's called an erosional nonconformity. So it creates this dip in the land, and that's where the waters from the two mountain ranges meet. And this is a beautiful example of how water moves laterally across the land. It doesn't just move vertically, but it moves laterally. And this is an important argument in the Mauna Kea case, because um, there the scientists were only talking about dikes that move water up and down the mountain. And we have really brilliant kupuna. And Kuching is a good friend of mine who's a former attorney. And he says, but what about the sills? What about the seals that move the water laterally across the mountain? And that brought in a new perspective as far as how we understand the movement of water. Um, so that would be just kind of um, an example of um, a mo'olelo mapping in story. And here's a kind of a later example in 1850 after um, the institution of private property ownership. So it was a very complicated event 
the Mahele of 1848, um, and the Ali'i or the chiefs believed they were doing this to protect the national lands of Hawaii, but they did divide the lands into lands for um, the Konohiki or the, um, the, the ones who distributed the lands, um, crowning government lands, and then um, also there was supposed to be lands awarded to the commoners, but many of the Maka'ainana did not claim their land. So um, it's, it's a really complicated history that there are historians looking into the specifics of Kuleana land ownership and or it's more like stewardship, yeah? Um, and um, these land commission awards. So this particular land commission award was made for three different sections of land. And they're just such beautiful maps, really. Um, they would map lands, um, Makai and Mauka. So it's um, according to, I'm sorry, Mauka and Makai, according to which lands were inland. We measure all our lands by our mountains in relation to the mountains because we have the mountains and the sea. So lands are located in relation to the mountains and the seas. And <clears throat> E is not for East, but for Eva and W for Waianae. These are, um, Eva would be in the direction of the rising of the sun and uh, Waianae in the direction of the setting of the sun. So not east and west, but looking at locations in relation to the sunrise and sunset. And it's, it's just a really beautiful way of thinking about um, um, lands that are um, located in relation to cliffs, the public road, um, Iliaina is a smaller land division and Ahupua'a, the Pali. Um, it remembers things like where they used to grow um, Vauke. So this Avava Vauke means it was a Vauke Valley. And that alerts us to the fact that there used to be a lot of water in that valley. Right now, the Board of Water um, Board of Water Supply doesn't tell us how much of the water is used by the military. So they tell us there's no water, but it's hard for us to gauge because the military is not required to disclose the, the, their usage of water because it's for quote unquote national security. But the point is that Mo'oaina teaches us that lands are connected and a destructive event in one place has implications for all other places, just as a small restorative event has implications for all other places. And I think that's the lesson to learn from Hawaii is that these restoration events um, are all, um, they're cascading effects and they, they create ripple effects that are beyond what we even know or what we think is happening. So, so I'm going to kind of stop there. Uh, and I, I know you have questions. Um, uh, and and I, I just wanted to say the one thing that really annoyed me <laughs> about, well, there was one book review. And I should just, of course, the one student evaluation, right? Out of all your student evaluation, there's going to be one that bugs you. So this one review said, I don't really know why she calls it planetary. And it kind of missed the point of the book, which is that what we do in Hawaii, it's not just a small place that's a small location on the map, but we have ripple effects outwards in terms of how we psychically imagine our relationships with the elements. And as far as the actual restoration efforts that they're engaging in, there are lessons there for other places as well. But I'm going to stop sharing and kind of uh, that kind of opened it up that way. And I don't know if you have kinds of questions you might have. Let me just tell my son to, that I'm filming right now because or I'm recording because he's making all kinds of noises.
Okay, <laughs> no, no problem. This is this is the Zoom live. Um, thanks for that uh, great introduction. Um, you know, it really struck me how you were saying that that the way people envision then um, the cardiographic relationships, right, the the map of of where things sit in relation to the mountain and the sea, um, and then you need to always stick it in relation. I was wondering how. Um, and you mentioned one case of, of a you know particular crop growing in a place, but how people think about vegetation within those relations. And and yeah. from my own work, uh, when I did work on on medieval um, Europe, you see that often when they uh, would write up boundaries of property, they use like trees um, uh -huh. as well as then you know streams of of water rivers but also small creeks but they can all and i can use rocks um so you can you can use kind of these landmarks that aren't well they might not be fixed in the way that we do things now right they were right. fixed they were fixed for them that that right. you know a really big tree uh you know it was going to be there so of course you would right. use it in setting up your land so i was wondering oh. how your cases do that kind of thing do they see those also as as kind of fixed um entities um when they're thinking about land yeah that's a really good question you know because um uh, I have actually uh, an image uh, I can share. I have a very messy desktop, but I want to share this image of how Kahlo plays an important role in the way that, um, okay, so I'm going to look for mapping. Oops, of course, mapping. I just had my folder open and let me go images. So there's this really cool map that I found. Um, it's this map right here. Now, <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly why, but um, this map, um, the importance, Kalo, Kalo farms were so important. And when you look at this map, it actually locates areas called formerly in taro. <laughs> so it marked where taro patches were it almost memorializes these taro patches as a recognition of how important they were but this as a settler colonial map also marks why these areas are no longer in taro cultivation and it's because of all these diversion tunnels so here's a tunnel and then you see spring you see the word stream spring stream spring and then you see tunnel 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 um and so um Kanakamali have been able to use these registered maps as a way of proving that lands that they are currently farming were previously in taro cultivation and therefore they have a pertinent rights to the water. Um, at one point, the, the Commission on Water Resources Management accused some Kalo farmers of diverting waters to their stream. And they actually said, we're not diverting water. We're restoring the original use of water. And um, Kanakamali farmers have said they don't have a word for diversion in um, Ho'olelo Hawaii. They only have the word hana, which means use. So only the use of water. So um, Kalo patches often had names. Um, everything had names. And the reason why Kalo patches had names was that um, so that the farmers could actually call on the rain clouds to come over their particular taro patches and say come and water my taro patches those guys over there they don't need the water like i do so come <laughs> come 
shower on my patches. And so by calling out the name, by naming the tarot patches, they could call out the names and they could activate the elements in that way. And that creates a different kind of relationship between the Kalo farmer and his Kalo. They're not just objects. Um, they, they, their home has a name. Every Kalo variety has a name. There are like 350 Kalo varieties. And their names signal their particular properties. So Kalo that can tolerate high levels of salinity have the name, uh, word kai built into their name. So kaikea, um, kaiula, um, that tells us that you can plant these Kalo along the shorelines. And they actually plant Kalo on the beaches. So yeah, I think Kalo as a plant has particular, you know, and it's also the younger or the elder sibling of Kanaka Maoli, there, uh, the, the creation story for uh, Kanaka, there were two births, one, the first birth was a stillborn child who was buried and became the Kalo plant, and the second child was the first chief, um, and so that kind of familial relationship means that Kalo is always important, and on maps, they have this particular significance. So I think that's just a great example of um, this issue of abundance um, that you're speaking of, where there are actually so many varietals uh, yeah. of this plant and that they that they have specific names and, and those names are signifiers of uh, land relation. Um, right. So so in their name, you see uh, how they're used, but where they're used, right? So, yep. so you actually have mapping within the name. And I think exactly. that's so interesting. So I wanted to ask something about mapping. I mean, the other part of the, the title here. So you've, you've shown some examples of maps, historic maps and maps that you've made yourself, but you also shown you know other forms of mapping i mean words are also mappings of relationships between people and place right so could you just say something more about how how you used maps okay okay so, so, thinking a little bit about yeah method and and you know, method to the madness how how you find which which things did you find maps in i mean maybe there was yeah. an abundance of maps too um there is dealing with so yeah you know um we have a great um so there are so many you know after a while i realized i'm really interested in thematic mapping you know i'm not necessarily only interested in um these kinds of state registered maps but state registered maps are the ones that state or uh, agencies recognize so when i'm presenting testimony for me to say this is registered map 1172 it has that kind of authority within a settler state system. So I guess I draw on maps according to context. So if I'm giving testimony, I give, and we have this beautiful system of registered maps. You can access thousands of maps um, through the Land Survey Bureau, which is part of our state. Um, and actually there's some old maps in there that are so beautiful. Like there's this one map that contains all the names on the reef. So it showed you where someone would go to find eel. If they wanted to catch uh, unagi to make sushi. <laughs> oh no, okay, they weren't making sushi, but they know where the eels are. You know, if they wanted to catch an eel to eat, they knew where the eel, there was a, 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 a hole called the, um, uh, lua puhi or something like that, um, puhi lua, something that to signify it's a, it's a eel pit. So they have those kinds of maps. But the thematic maps, I can just, so 
I guess I was asking myself, how do Kanakamali use maps in testimony? And so um, I started reading through environmental impact statements and I was reading through cultural impact assessments. And there, there when community present um, testimony, they would present a mural. They would say, this is a map of the birth of Maui, or this is a map that shows us, and it's one of the, um, I can just pop that up. So um, this is this map here, the one of the mural, this one. So um, they would use this in their testimony and they would say, so this is Pu'uheleakala and we can see, or this is also Pu'uheleakala. We can see the stories of Hina beating her kappa there while she's flanked by her daughters, um, um, Lua Lua Le and Nanai Ku'ule and her son Maui is in the ocean um, trying to pull up the islands, right? And so they would use these mural maps to show that people in the community know their stories and these culturally sensitive sites are protected um, by the state. Um, so the state uh, has, the state of Hawaii actually has um, a constitutional and statutory responsibility to protect um, places that are culturally significant to Native Hawaiians. Um, now, what the state tries to do is to say, um, oh, well, you know, you're talking about a cultural landscape that's ephemeral. Uh, well, you know, the Kumulipo stories, they've been around since at least seven, they've been around since way before 1700. But we know that they're at least dating from 17. So they're not quite ephemeral. <laughs> they like to, you know, put, they like to pose that um, argument that um, indigenous knowledges about the landscape are ephemeral. But um, these landscape, um, they, have important relevance in terms of seasonal and navigational significance. Um, Maui orients his, his canoe in relation to Hina's cave and he triangulates between Hina's cave and the stream of Ulehava to know where he needs to go to um, pull up the islands. But that's also um, alluding to other forms of knowledge that according to certain times of the year, they would fish for certain kinds of fish. And all of that is embedded in the mo'olelo. So um, I was thinking about those kinds. So I started kind of expanding my conception of cartography beyond just ideas of um, uh, points on a map or a grid or longitude and latitude and thinking also about how people um, would map. This is the struggle to protect Mauna Wakea. There were 16 lines going up the Mauna and um, they represented the 16 lines of the Kumulipo and this is Lake Vaiau at the summit of Mauna Wakea. So conceptually, the way they saw themselves standing for the Mauna was a return to the Pico. And the Pico is the point, um, it's like your belly button, it connects you to um, all past generations or your, your ma'i or your genitals, which connects you to all future generations. And actually the third Pico is on the top of your head, which connects you to the akua, the elements, yeah? So um, it's conceptually, this uh, illustrates a relationship to land thematically that um, I think changes our consciousness uh, when we think about how they're standing for land. The state, when they look at Kanaka Maoli standing for land, the state represents them as unruly people who um, 
who are transgressing the law, um, who are refusing to um, stand by the law. And what Kanaka Mali are saying uh, is that there are elemental laws that take precedence over human laws. We know human laws are fallible. We know human laws uh, make slavery legal, yeah, or um, the treatment of migrants in the United States at the border, you know, the ICE kinds of, um, that kind of, you know, traumatic events are considered legal. Um, so we need to question, um, you know, I look to Martin Luther King saying that we have a moral obligation to, um, to stand against laws that are unjust. And this is precisely what they're doing in this um, image. Um, and it's, I think it's a way for young people to, um, it, it empowers them to see themselves, not just as a single point on a line, but as having these generations that came before them and the generations that will come after them, they're teaching young people how to become elders. And that intergenerational sense of responsibility is one that informs the stewardship of the land. So you would not plant you know, these jet fuel tanks inside of the land that you farm or that gives you your water. And that kind of intergenerational stewardship is so um, important um, in this way. But yeah, I do love the the regular maps too, you know, and um, let's see, I'm trying to, uh, sorry, I'm like, I don't know what I did here. Okay, there we go. Uh, oh, I know, stop sharing. Uh, yeah, so there are, um, I guess we're so lucky, you know, I don't know if other places are like this, but we can look up really old maps. And so whenever the state will say something like, um, this area is agriculturally unfeasible. Um, I actually have access to these aerial maps they took in the 1970s that showed lands in cultivation. So I was able to capture one of those maps and it was saying, oh, you could never plant anything on this land. And then it shows 17 acres under cultivation, like an aerial photograph. And that was so cool. You know, even though people um, have been critical about the bird's eye view as being a very militarized view, we've used it to our advantage um, when we're trying to protect places on the land. And as far as climate change is concerned, you know, that kind of corporate development of land is so disastrous to um, the health of people in Hawaii. Um, so I've been arrested um, for standing for lands um, where there were wind farms. Um, and the problem is that the wind farms are located within uh, less than 1500 feet away from the closest school and blade throw you know when the blades break off um they can be flung at, at as far as 1500 feet so um <clears throat> that kind of mapping also is just very practical and so we do need to find alternatives to fossil fuels but the problem is the corporate locate the corporate way of locating these these corporate wind farms too close to residences and communities. So yeah, mapping in so many different ways. Um, and, and there's, again, Olalo mapping of how, yeah, that place was known for the wind power. And, and I don't know that it's, um, there are different kinds of uh, wind turbines that I think the state needs to look into. But of course, it's not a it's not attractive to the investors who are looking for the cheapest source for the greatest power, which is like a 728 foot blade. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it also evokes to me some associations to deep mapping as a concept. I don't know if you use that as a William Lee's Heat Moon. I mean, which is in a way in order to truly capture a place, you need to be able to map, you know, this, this abundance of relations in, in any given place. But it sounds also to me like you're, you're turning this towards, in a way, activism and interventions in uh, yeah. ongoing processes, which is, is really nice, I think. Yeah. yeah. So can you, can you say more about kind of this activist, um, you know, agenda then? I mean, you've had a couple of examples here, but if there's a particular example you'd like to talk about. Um, yeah, so Mauna Kea has been a really important one. And, and I'm so happy to say there are people from Norway who came and you know, we have pictures of people in Norway going, we stand for Mauna Kea. <laughs> I was going to try to find them and I couldn't find them, but I was just so happy. So Mauna Kea um, is an example where the mountain is full of water and it sits on the aquifers for the, for, um, the island of Hawaii. And, you know, again, in different parts of the book, I'm looking at the different stratification so that when you map land, <clears throat> there are all these um, substrata mappings that are very important. Of course, the state doesn't know what's there. And, you know, we have these great stories about the sharks who would know the paths that would lead up to the mountain. So I guess the bottom line is the state does not have that kind of knowledge. Because, you know, um, state is always limited by time and money, but you have Kanakamali intergenerational knowledge. So for the Mauna, you know, there's a, the mountain is saturated with water. And um, I remember uh, sitting on a, on a panel with scientists, um, actually there were astronomers who were saying that um, there's not a lot of rainfall on Mauna Kea, so it can't be generating that much water. Um, and then, you know, I said, well, the, 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 what is the primary source of water on the mountain? It's actually fog drip. So, you know, we're using science. Um, Kanaka Mali are scientists. That's the thing that, you know, these uh, astronomers are failing to recognize. They have a science and the science is a recognition that the Mauna is saturated with water. So that capillary action <clears throat> draws the water downward. And so when I stand for the Mauna on the front lines, I'm standing for water. We are water protectors and we have a very powerful connection to the um, Standing Rock people. So um, some of the protectors of the Mauna actually were at Standing Rock and were um, part of the nonviolent direct action training program there. And they also had a program for um, like art as protest. And so when we when they um, when the struggle was taken from Standing Rock to Mauna Kea, Mauna Kea people also had a lot of um, similar tactics. So we were all trained in 2019 for direct action, um, non, what was it, nonviolent direct action, so NVDA. And there are a lot of important ties between what we do in Hawaii and what Native Americans are doing on the continent. So the land back movement that's initiated by the NDN collective, we have ties to that. So um, we have people flying land back sides in Hawaii. And it's so cool. Like when you listen to Nick Tilson and Crystal Tubles talking about the NDN collectives initiative, um, it's, it's very powerful because what they bring in is also an understanding of how decolonization 
movement involves abolitionist work. So a decolonial future is also an abolitionist future. Like we have to rethink, dismantle the police state because of its very racist white supremacist underpinnings. And we have to reconceptualize what the state looks like. So for so I can, <clears throat> I've interviewed black activists who have been on Mauna Kea who say that they are there because Kanaka Maoli are also standing up against unjust white supremacist laws when they stand for the laws of the elements. And so you can see that um, way that abolitionist thinking is intersecting with decolonial thinking. And, um, and Native people actually have land-based governing principles. Uh, and I think that that's what's key is that it's not a nation organ organized around the state, but it's a land-based uh, way of thinking about nationhood. And that's very different. Um, one that's not based on markets, on you know capitalist conceptions of market-based economies, but rather food production economies. How can we base um, so for Kanaka Mali, they have a kauhale system, which is based around transporting the, the growing, the cultivation, the distribution of food. It's not about markets. So anyway. Well, I think that's a, a nice uh, connection to uh, Micah's comments and, and question in the chat, um, oh, oh. Which, which deals with, but I'll, I'll handle for it, um, which deals with abundance and, and capitalism and your, your point that capital fears it. And I think this is really interesting to think about myself, too, um, how capitalism is built around the idea of scarcity. So if something yep. is scarce, therefore you will pay um, for it, you know, somebody, there's a demand and, and you're going to meet it with supply, right? <laughs> and, and, and so, and she brings up Robin Wall Kemmerer's essay, Economies of Abundance on Service Berries, um, which mm -hmm. gets with a really good essay in the way you think about the world and what service um, yeah. service berries do, right? What, what, yeah. where they, where they are and what they affect. Um, yeah. And so uh, in, in thinking about that, can, can you tell us a little bit more about how you think about then uh, capital and capitalism um, versus abundance and, and scarcity and where, you know, where your work then critiques that? Yeah, yeah. I, and, you know, I love Robin Wall Kimmerer and um, I teach, you know, because I'm in the English department, I teach courses in introduction to English studies. So I teach braiding sweetgrass in introduction to English studies because she's a poet, you know, <laughs> and she's ecologically minded. And we, you know, and, and that is another area of literary studies is, you know, like ecological studies. But um it's just incredibly beautiful how she writes about my, my favorite chapter in the book is the one about the pecans um, and also the asters and the goldenrods but there's so many beautiful chapters um, so thinking about scarcity um, you know the the, the, st the settler state produces um, on the one hand illusions of scarcity it depicts abundant lands as um, as economically uh, 
unfeasible agriculturally. Um, so there's the illusion, but then it also produces wasteland in the process of condemning the land. So, so you know, like for Mauna Kea, um, there are these territorial maps that say that it's like a wasteland because there's no vegetation. But I always wondered, why was it coated green? And it's because they were advertising that land for land grants to settlers. They were inviting settlers from the United States to come over and to settle. So they depicted these supposed wastelands as these green lands. And I thought, that was so bizarre, you know, talk about like, you know, um, they're even unaware of <laughs> the incongruity of what they're doing. But the um, the truth is that true abundance, what is the true abundance? It's the relationships that we have with each other. And it's the relationship we have with the elements and with the land, and even the relationships that the elements have with each other. So that kind of abundance, um, the state solutions are always short-sighted. Um, they're the cheapest alternatives. It is kind of scary to think that, um, you know, the quick fixes, okay, uh, we don't have enough water, let's build a desalination plant. Well, what kind of impact is a desalination plant going to have on a very small islet, right? Um, it's kind of, it's scary in that way to think about how ancestral planning was for generations and capitals planning um, is just so short-sighted and it doesn't consider the human cost, right? So with the wind farms, it's, yeah, just plant a wind farm right next to a school so we can maximize on profits. Um, yeah, so that part is really, uh, it's really hard and thinking more long-term about um, what kinds of things we need. Uh, so, you know, thinking about seawalls. So the question also asks us um, seawalls creating scarcity. And I definitely think like any wall, like Trump's wall <laughs> or like seawalls, they do erode away and they create a larger long-term problem. Um, what is the short-term problem? I mean, what is the short-term solution? I mean, I really believe in organizing globally. So I, I don't, I, it's not that I'm saying that we should only work on the things that indigenous people are working on, those of us who have access to, you know, global resources and have a voice there, you know, we need to be actively, you know, working against these kinds of corporate, um, the corporate devastation of the earth. But locally, um, you know, I just do what I can to support fish ponds because they're doing the most to bring back um, native economies of abundance so so seawalls um so uh so for i mean there's different ways of thinking about it there are there are ways in which i'm you know i'm reading about um, julian Aguan had such a beautiful article uh recently um about refusing to drown as someone as uh, Chamoru, um, as someone from the Pacific, he talks about all of the Pacific Islanders who are seeing their lands being inundated because they're living on atolls. And I understand that kind of, that kind of um, the way that they're pushing so hard and that they are on the very front lines of sea, um, sea level rise, move, movements against sea level rise is incredible. So, um, you know, Kathy Jetno Kijiner, so many people talk about her work. She talks about how she refuses to be called a climate refugee. 
she says, we will make our own choices. Now, um, they're faced with really difficult choices in terms of um, being housed by other Pacific Islanders. Like I know that some people are, um, some of the Pacific Islanders who find their homes being inundated are moving to Fiji. So they rely on other Pacific Islanders. Um, and that's a different kind of relationship. But it was interesting to me how she was saying she was refusing the term climate uh, climate refugee. She says that is not who we are because it takes away our agency. And her, her the important part about the work she does um, with sea level rise is she has a, a, a group of youth, uh, the group's called Jojicom, I think, and they went to London. And the first response of the, the children, the students in London was, how can we help you? And their response was really interesting to me. They said, it's not about how you can help us, but about how we're helping you, because you will face this too. The sea level rise is going to hit all of us. It's not just going to hit us in the Pacific. It's going to hit all of us. And how do we all get, how do we all prepare ourselves? So there's that activist oriented approach. And I feel that is so important. Another approach is the way that some Kanaka artists are looking at sea level rise. So yeah, seawalls, um, seawalls, the rich people build the seawalls to protect their homes. Of course, some people who are not necessarily wealthy, but in Florida, um, it's really interesting. I think people don't know this, but the federal government subsidizes the insurance um, that um, people are paying in Florida because they have such high risk for sea level rise. Um, so they, the, the federal government was paying to subsidize their insurance costs. And now the federal government is withdrawing the subsidies. So people are now um, ending up having to pay like, like 10 times more money than they used to pay for their insurance. So um, there are ways that um, there have been these protections and even people in Hawaii who have these multi-million dollar homes, they're asking the state to build these seawalls for them. But of course the state, what the seawalls do is they redirect the surge of the wave further down the coast. So there's inevitably gonna be a point that hits that where all of the impact hits at one time. And that's gonna cause huge erosion, not only of the areas right in front of the beachfront property, but further down the coast. And we see that on Maui where um, there are all these um, remains, ancestral remains, we call them iwi kupuna. There's a wall that wealthy people have built to protect their homes. And at the end of the beach, there's a beach called Puamana, where it's, it's getting the brunt of the wave force, the wave action. And so it's all being eroded away. And um, there's like, uh, the bones are now, um, falling into the ocean. So we have to, I'm actually making kappa. I learned how to make kappa, which is bark cloth. So we pound the bark cloth and then we um, give them over to the people who will wrap the EV in the cloth and will reinter them. So it's a very complex situation um, with a lot of things happening. And even with Obama seawall, not exactly sure, but there's um, terrible erosion. I can actually show you a picture of this terrible erosion that's happening down the beach from um, Obama's seawall. Um, so this is a kind of new area. People are trying to figure out what is the alternative to seawalls. So let's see. Oh, yeah, you can see in this picture here. This is, oops, okay, sorry, this desktop. 
Okay, here we go. So you can kind of see here. So there are seawalls on this side and Obama's property is in, in this direction. But this is what happens to the beach. They, the beach used to stretch out to like down here. And this is the uh, kind of a visual image of sea level rise. And even in Waikiki, uh, we have things called king tides now that inundate like lower like um, basement parking structures and even the lobbies of hotels in Waikiki. And so, um, so you know, we're trying to figure out what 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 to do in this kind of situation and just as people in the Marshall Islands are trying to figure out what to do and um, there's actually an artist um, named Kaili Chan who envisions a kind of return of abundance um, let's see if I shucks uh, I know sorry I know I, I have a really crazy crazy here I have this okay I have this image um, she does this series of images that show the inundation pattern so you see how um, this is what Waikiki looks like. This is the tax map key map. And then, um, oh, yeah. And then you see like how slowly it's being inundated. But at the same time that um, the Waikiki, that the um, beaches of Waikiki are being inundated by the, the ocean and sea level rise, we see the return of the fish. And um, other uh, indigenous artists have, have commented as well that um, the return, the, the return of the seas um, will actually bring back so much that was taken by um, sort of like conspicuous capital, like Waikiki. Waikiki, um, you know, it was really painful. It used to be all, uh, um, there's a lot of fresh water, a lot of springs, and there were uh, lo'ikalo all over. It was the place Ali'i stayed because it was like the most prosperous place where there was so much fresh water. Um, that was done away when they started building all the hotels and they dredged out the Alawai Canal and um, they started throwing some of the dredged coral into the lo'ikalo and it basically poisoned all the kalo, um, the freshwater kalo. And so this is kind of a return. It's sort of the, revent, the return of the repressed or, you know, uh, and, and so there's a kind of abundance in that. And so I, I understand that when I talk about this, it comes into conflict. It's not, it, it almost seems a kind of like an exuberant return. And I understand that it comes up against what Marshall Islanders are saying about protecting their homes. But there's a way in which um, Kanaka Maoli talk about working with the elements, not working against the elements. So at, at as we try to stop the corporate kind of um, events that are exacerbating sea level rise, there's a way in which the practitioners are also preparing for adaptation. Yeah, so. I mean, uh, I think that's, kind of, that's really important to point out how it's this, it's this other way of being. It's another way of knowing, right? Of, right and as you right. pointed out that it's, it's not um, that there's only one kind of science, right? You know, right. the science capital S or and capitalism, um, but in fact, other ways of, of knowing re and relating uh, to the land, to the water, to the beings, to the right. elements. So I, I like that that way of understanding elements there. So I think yeah. in, in relation to that, it comes down to the, in a way, the stories we tell, the master narratives we have about basically what's going on in this, mm -hmm. this planetary level. So. Mm -hmm. What we see, I think, in, in your story you're presenting to us here is the, 
you know, these local negotiations, but also some resistance to these, yeah. uh, this large uh, narrative. Yes. So, well, yes. but you haven't mentioned, I think, the, you know, the biggest one at the moment. So the Anthropocene as a, as a concept, you know, where yeah. uh, it's not just about climate change, but it's about really humanity and technology and these planetary geological biological processes becoming so intertwined that you can no longer disentangle them uh, yeah. which i think puts yeah. restoration anyway return to how it used to be in kind of a dif yeah. difficult perspective because there might not be a way back but do you see like also resistance to that is like this is not a framing that we accept we have yes yes. <laughs> yes so um so kanaka mali scientists when they talk about sea level rise they talk about the rising of kanaloa so they understand kanaloa as the deep consciousness of the ocean and so the question they ask is how are we to receive him if kanaloa is returning how are we to receive him and that uh, re-articulates our relationships with the elements rather than um, an antagonistic relationship. It's understood as um, one that is in a kind of complex balance. So the relationship between Kane and Kanaloa in Hawaii is such that the freshwater flows, Kane represents the freshwater flows from streams and underground springs and um, Kanaloa is the ocean. Well, the Kane is necessary to cool the islands, the waters around the island. So when hurricanes come over the warm Pacific waters, when they hit the cold waters that surround the islands, they veer north or they veer south. So we're dependent on that relationship between the salt water and the fresh water. And when we understand it as that relationship, it makes us read these mo'olelo differently. Like what is the relationship between Kane and Kanaloa? Um, and that's one um, where it has to do with the hurricanes and the cooling of the waters. Um, and there are just other relationships like that. But I think it's thinking about these relationships as, um, so um, it's training us not to think of the elements as um, as it's, or, you know, it, I've been trying to change my pronouns. So I talk about land as there, they, they, I saw, so you know, because I'm in English and I hate the subject verb agreement I, errors, I, I will say the lands and their agency. Yeah, because the land does move, it does heave and breathe. Um, it, it does move under us. It It's not a static thing. Um, and it rolls and it swells when it rains. We know that it swells and we know that there are consequences when the, the, the land is waterlogged. And so it's think um, in, in I'm, I'm actually taking these stewardship classes from um, this woman named Kikuhi um, Kanaka Ole, and they are like this, like they're they're this family of Kumuhula. So they're like they're just amazing, amazing, amazing. Um, they've been teaching hula for so long, and they teach stewardship classes. And so I'm taking these stewardship classes with them, and they train us to do redo a genealogy. They tell us do your genealogy, and you need to tell. Um, in your genealogy, you need to explain, you know, who your great grandparents were, where they came from, and you trace your way down to yourself. And then you are to say, who is your mountain? 
who is your fresh water? Who is your rain? Who is your wind? Who is your sea? And it's all prefaced by um, the possessive ku'u, which is my beloved. So it's ku'u, ku'u'ua, you know, my, my beloved rain. And so you develop an understanding and a, a closer kind of um, observational practice so what they're they're actually cultivating here's here's sort of part of the answer or not part of the answer but they're teaching children to kilo and that's the art of close observation so they ask children to find one thing to observe intently for a month whether it's the rising of the moon and where it rises in the sky relevant to you know the horizon or it's about um, how stream flows or how rains fall so the rains of my place um, it's called the kaniko'o rain and and it's really interesting because um, uh, it means the tapping of a cane, an old man's cane. And I wasn't quite sure why it was called that until I was listening to the rain falling on my kalo plants. And I realized that we have very heavy drops of rain because we're on the the windward side of the mountain. So in terms of rain capture, we collect a lot of rain on our side of the island. But you wouldn't know that unless you know, okay, you have the kaniko'o rain and when the rain falls on the kalo leaf, it found, sounds like the tapping of a cane because it's so big and huge, yeah. So um, they're teaching children, young children, to be more observant about this kind of environmental kinds of, um, these kinds of um, events so that they can collect a baseline recording and then they can start tracking anomalies so like in Hawaii we're facing um uh the El Nino is moving for us the El Nino is moving further I think it's moving further wait further west and that's why it's hitting us more than it did before um, and that's been impacting fish ponds because we get hotter waters in the fish ponds um, problem is with oxygenating the fish pond so um, fish ponds have found that oh, if they clear out the mangroves um, to re, um, to clear out the stream flow into the fish pond uh, the fresh water flow helps to oxygenate the water in the fish pond so you know through observation people at the fish pond there's like they have this really cool process where they have categories that they kilo for and so um, they'll say okay how many opelu did you see in the um, fish pond today? And, you know, I don't know how they count the opelu. <laughs> they say, well, I saw, you know, so many and, and I saw a school with this many. Or, okay, uh, tidal rise, uh, tidal, what was the height of the uh, last full moon tide? What was the height of um, this full moon's tide? What, you know, and so they anticipate changes in the natural world in that kind of way. So sorry, I can go no, on and no, on. That's, I mean, it's a, it's a great example of how, well, citizen science, um, you know, collecting this kind of data. Um, yes. But it's it's not just um, an unconnected, right? So it's yeah. about it's about relations. It's and, about environmental and citizenship. It's, it's about environmental citizenship. It's mm -hmm. about understanding that you're that you're in a in an, uh, a a situation where you have rights and responsibilities um, for your place, uh, for your right. mountain, for your rain, for your uh, stream, and that right. all of these are are you know relational. Um, yes. So I think that's that's fantastic and something that we need to uh, really continue to think about and use actively in environmental humanities um, work. So um, we want to really thank you, uh, Candice, um, for coming here today and uh, sharing with us about your book, Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, uh, which is with Duke University uh, Press from 2021. And so we uh, invite all of our 
um, listeners to have a look at that at that book and really think about the abundance that's there and how we can use that abundance um, to reframe our relations. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. This is so much fun. And I love environmental citizenship because I know other people are practicing similar things. Thank you. Thanks so much.